I think maybe you guys have heard of uh, the Babylon Bee. It's a Christian satire news site that I think it's kind of funny. They have articles and videos sometimes. And it's like, it's made to look like a, a true news site, but it actually says right on there, fake news. Like this fake Christian news. And they have headlines like, um, that poke fun. Satire, what it does is it, it pokes fun at, um, at things using irony or exaggeration to expose something. For example, one this week said, a teen daughter politely asks parents to consider not existing while her friends are over. You know, poking fun at how sometimes teenagers tell their parents, like, my friends are coming over, can you just not do, like, karaoke with your shirt off when my friends are here, you know? I mean, can you, actually, can you just disappear off the face of the earth for, like, half an hour, an hour, you know? So it's, like, it written like a true story, but obviously it's just, it's just a joke. And a while back, they did a video where a guy was saying 10 irrefutable arguments that, from an atheist as to why God doesn't exist. For example, one of them was, um, how could James Cameron make a sequel to Avatar? Because that happened, we know that God doesn't exist, right? Or the big one was this. He said, bad things happen, therefore God doesn't exist. Boom, checkmate, Christian. That's it, you know? Case closed, no more arguments. Might as well just pack it up right now and I'll head out the door. Why are, what are we even doing here? I mean, they thought, they said basically, the atheist is saying, it's an open and shut case. Bad things happen, God doesn't exist. End of story. I don't even need to go on. And it's funny to me, not because it's not a legitimate question, but it's funny because some non-Christians think that, that that's the end of the discussion, right? Why even talk about it, you know? Why even talk about does God exist when bad things happen? No need to examine the uh, claims of Christianity if there are bad things that are happening. And it's funny to me because sometimes people will think that they stumbled onto some new argument that has never been discovered before. As if people haven't thought of that question for hundreds, thousands of years. I mean, I, side note here is uh, they, re- they recently did an article to the Babylon Bee that said, uh, is an article about an atheist who was struggling with his faith because so many good things happened. I thought, well, that's a good question. Why? And the article was written like as if a guy was saying, like, maybe there is, I mean, a reason for everything. Like, how come all these great things are happening? You never ask that question. All you ask is, God shouldn't exist because bad things happen. Well, why do bad things happen? So here's the thing. People have been asking this question for a really long time. As long as we have an, uh, uh, humans began to understand God and when God revealed himself— as an all-powerful God, as we learned about at Course Seminar, God is all-powerful, and God is good. So why do bad things happen? I'm sure we've all wrestled with that question from time to time. And in fact, I think the writer of Ecclesiastes, I think he wrestled with this as well. If you heard the, the message from last week, last week was chapter 3, and we talked about how God is working out everything in his time. That there's a time and a season for everything under heaven. And that God is working all things out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I think the end of chapter 3 and then actually all of chapter 4 are a continuation of what he's already started talking about when he's talking about a, a time for everything and a season for everything. And so what the author does here, which I believe the author of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon, what he's about to do here is to bring up six facts 
which would otherwise negate his thesis that God has a plan and operation that involves everyone and everything. So I think he brings up things, these questions, that we are looking at the world and saying, hold on a second, like, you're saying God is good, you're saying God is powerful, but what about this? I think he's bringing this up and saying, look at the, have, have, I considered this. Remember, he considered everything. He thought about these things. And so the big takeaway for us today is that, because I really feel like, I don't know about you, but Ecclesiastes, this was written a long time ago, and I feel like this is so applicable for modern life today, which is all of scripture, I know, I get it. But like, especially this is what we're talking about. So the big takeaway here is that despite arguments to the contrary, and even when things don't really make sense, God is still on his throne, and God is still in control. God is still on his throne, and God is still in control. So let's look, take a look at what the, the author of Ecclesiastes has to say here. I mentioned uh, last week that verse 15 is really difficult. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see like maybe a massive paragraph break between verses 15 and 16, maybe even a headline that the editors of our Bibles have put in. Now, if you have a reader's Bible, which we were talking about last week with somebody, like if you have a reader's Bible that doesn't have those breaks, it just might run continuously, which is how they would have read it. Well, a lot of people looking at this think, verse 15 kind of goes with verse 16 too. So it operates kind of like one of those hinge verses where you could put it with the paragraph before or you could put it with the paragraph after. And it's another one of those phrases that the author of Ecclesiastes, I mean... It's like really confusing. So in the ESV, it translated as what God seeks has been driven away. And then if you look in the footnote, it literally says it could also be translated as God seeks what has been pursued. And so that footnote, it makes it seem like if you translate it like that, it goes with verse 16 here. That it's talking about God's, uh, it's a run on from God's sovereign an enduring work and about how God has divine justice and how that works, you know, fits in with human injustice. And so he brings up this first stumbling block to think about when we talk about, well, God is good and God is sovereign. In verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And so this is a lesson that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives to us. He brings about this fact that you all learn from the time that you were a young kid, right? If you're in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, maybe um, some of the kids here can testify to the fact that they wanted something to turn out a certain way, and the parents said, it's not going to happen that way. And what does the kids say? Well, that's not fair, right? And what is our response as parents in our, in our wisdom? Life isn't fair. That's right. It's a good lesson for you kids to learn at a young age that life isn't fair, right? That's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, I looked around, and in a place where there should be justice, there's injustice. Life isn't fair. And it's funny because it's true. The biblical prophets, men like Amos and, and Jeremiah, they were always crying out for justice. And rightly so, because justice is one of those deep longings of the human heart. And the author here acknowledges that where there are those places where there should be justice and there should be righteousness, oftentimes we look at this world and what do we see? We see wickedness in the place. And that's a problem, right? What he's probably referring there is to the halls of government. 
Because in the Old Testament times, in biblical times, if, you, if a person was treated unfairly, they would go to the city gates. And the city gates, there was a raised platform, probably not very high. Some of the pictures that I've seen are about as high as this little platform that I'm standing on. But there was a seat that was sitting there, and the governing official, usually early in the morning, would sit on that seat, and if you had a case to bring, you would bring your case before the governing official. And guess what? Back then, even like today, usually is the people that had the money who got their way. <laughs> That's what happened a lot of times. And sometimes innocent people would be found guilty, or guilty people would go unpunished. And he's looking at this and saying, in these, this place where there should be justice, Oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, there's wickedness in the place. Unfortunately, this still happens in our day as well. Just a couple months ago, a man named Sidney Holmes uh, was uh, arrested. He was uh, behind bars in Florida, sentenced to 800 years for armed robbery. He was in jail for 34 years, and he got released because it was a wrongful conviction. Could you imagine spending 34 years of your life behind bars knowing that you didn't do anything wrong and knowing you were just uh, basically a victim of a corrupt system? And eventually the truth came to light and he was released from prison, found not guilty of a, of a crime. And sometimes, you know, sometimes mistakes happen. Sometimes there are accidents. But sometimes injustice is intentionally done by evil men, he says. And the preacher's frustration is not simply that there is injustice, but that it goes unpunished. According to Martin Luther, talking about this passage, he said he's not complaining because there is wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice cannot be corrected. So there was no fixing it there. When the halls of justice become corridors of corruption, where can the righteousness be found, he's asking. Where can righteousness be found? Do you just throw up your hands in frustration and conclude, well, you know what? I guess God doesn't exist. You know, it's crazy to me. I love those stories when they come up of justice being actually, you know, fixed when somebody is wrongfully convicted. And it's amazing to me how many people come out, and this isn't a blanket statement, but how many people come out and are not like anger, um, bitter. Like a lot of people, it's like, well, I knew that God was going to prevail in the end. I, that's what this guy said. I knew that I was right and that God was going to prevail. Um, his truth was going to come to light in the end. And it's just amazing that uh, this is exactly what the preacher here says. What the preacher says at the very next verse, because he answers this question in verse 16. He answers it in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Which is, again, this sounds like an echo from what we read in the, in the beginning of chapter 3. So the author is saying that, you know what, God is still just. We don't know the exact timing of his plan. We don't know why that God had to spend 34 years behind jail. We have no idea. And we, we don't even understand God's timing a lot of times. But rest assured that God will rightly judge all matters in the end, in his time. So even if you think... You know, injustice goes on, and the person, you know, let's say a righteous person dies behind bars, or somebody who committed a crime goes scot-free their whole life. It's not like God didn't see what was happening. It's not like God was just going to be like, oh, wow, the, uh, the court case is messed up there. No, in the end, God is going to rightly judge every single situation, every single act, every single person. And the Christian should take great comfort in this. The non-Christian, the unbeliever, 
the unrighteous person should be worried about God's final judgment day. Because on that day, God will look at every person and know whether they were trusting in themselves for salvation or whether they were trusting in Jesus' work on the cross for their behalf. There is no middle ground. On that day, God will set everything right. And if justice seems a long time coming, as it often does, we need to listen to the words of like the prophet Habakkuk who said, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And speaking of God's justice. So some people may still wonder, well, why justice is delayed? Why doesn't God just judge people right away? Why does he wait? Maybe, why is God maybe going to wait until the final judgment day? Well, the preacher has a good answer to this question in verse 18, where he said, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So Solomon says that we are like animals and that we were, we're ultimately going to die someday. And here is his point. We want justice and we want things to be set right. But what about our part in this injustice? That is our problem. God cannot hold evil and injustice accountable without holding us accountable and our parts in those things as well. The problem is that it's not that we don't recognize unjust acts. When someone wrongs us, let's say they, they steal our identity or they, they take something from us or they break into our house, what do we want? You know, when somebody wrongs us, we want justice right away. But what happens if we get pulled over for speeding? What do we want? We want mercy. We want justice for others and mercy for ourselves. We need to recognize that even though we cry out for justice, in actuality, we maybe don't know what we're asking for. I like how Tim Keller said this. He said, are we not glad that Judgment Day was not in 1968? <laughs> Many of us would not have existed. Are we not glad God does not set evil right immediately? None of us would be here. So we are thankful for God's grace. We are thankful for God's mercy that he shows to us. And Solomon tells us in this section of in Ecclesiastes 3 that the, the wages for our part in this injustice, in this world, is death. The wages of sin is death. And death comes to us all. Solomon reveals the similarity between men and beasts and to show that how we don't have any advantage over to them because both uh, humans and animals both die. Life is passing for both men and animals. And that brings us to another very confusing statement here that the author makes. Because if you look at verse 21, it looks like he's, he's asking this question that he, as if he says, I don't know what happens to the souls of men like we don't know what happens to the souls of animals. Personally, I don't really think, I don't really know for certain, but I don't really think they're going to be animals in heaven. I know that movie says all dogs go to heaven, right? I'm not going to talk about where cats go. But like we, I, the Bible doesn't really speak about that God put the image of himself into mankind. And so I don't really think he's actually questioning that as if he doesn't know the answer. I think he's asking the question as if he knows the answer and he wants you to think about this. Because later on in chapter 12, verse 7, he affirms that the, the spirit of a person returns to God after death. So I don't think he's just in this verse saying, 
Who knows what happens to the spirit of humans after we die? No, he says it in chapter 12, what happens. And so I think he's asking that question to get you to think about it. To get you to think about how we are the same as animals and the fact that our life is going to end, but we're different in animals and the fact that our life is, our spiritual life will go on forever. So it's not a question of not knowing, but of telling us that we ought to recognize those differences. And it's similar to what the psalmist says in Psalms 49, where he says, We are all like sheep who gone astray, but God will rescue us from hell. Not sheep, but he will rescue his sheep, his people, from that. And then that reminder here is kind of similar to the, one of those themes, those pictures that the author is painting in the book of Ecclesiastes, that all of our life is like vapor, like mist, like smoke, like the mist in the morning that is there and then is gone. And so our lives are always changing. We're, our lives are always changing. So we should make the most of the time that we have in this life, which is the start of eternal life. And when we have the assurance of eternal life, we can find joy in the everyday work that God has for, his, for, for us. You see, chapter 4, it opens with this third reality of life that seems to stand in stark contrast to God's sovereign plan. And that is the oppressions of the powerful over the weak. And it says that those who are being oppressed have no comforter. In the Bible, oppression involves cheating one's neighbor out of something, defrauding him or, or robbing him. It involves making an unjust gain. In the Old Testament law, too, they were, were, were allowed to loan money to each other, but they weren't allowed to loan with interest. But some people still did it, right? And some people still used the fact that they had money as a way to hold power over their fellow citizens there. And sometimes, as we see back then, even today, there are people that have power that end up have using money or influence, and they have power over the more vulnerable in society, the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the strangers. We know that those are the groups of people that God is constantly telling his people. He wrote it into the law, and then he's constantly telling his people, watch out for this. Don't mistreat these people. But we know that God's heart is always for the most vulnerable. It's written into his law over and over again. God says, render true judgment judgments show kindness and mercy to one another do not oppress the widow the fatherless the sojourner or the poor and let none of you devise evil against another in his heart you see as christians we ought to pray and we ought to ask god to give us his heart for those in our society who fit in these categories of who don't have this don't have the power in society as Christians, we should always be working for justice. We should always be engaging in mercy ministries. And we should also understand that we live in a fallen world, and we know that we're going to work our whole lives, but things aren't going to be set right until Jesus comes back again. But as Christians, we know that Jesus is coming back again. We can have that assurance. The reality is so painful that the teacher here, he actually says, you know, in a way, it'd be better if to be, it would be better to not even be alive, to have never been born because of the difficulties in this life. The fact that we live in this broken world where people get taken advantage of and they don't have a comforter. The fourth roadblock reality from Solomon is that in verse, um, in verse four here, it says uh, that envy is a root of so many problems. 
Envy is the root of so many problems, especially seen in the business world, which I think he's actually talking about the business world here. You know, ha being a part of business and being industrious is, is a good quality to have. Um, Proverbs, which I believe that Solomon also wrote, he talked about the importance of, of working hard and that sort of thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but often the rule of business is, is kind of like the law of the jungle. It's the sin of envy that leads to so many other sins. Envy is that feeling of, of discontent, of resentful longing uh, about, about what somebody else has, the, either their possessions or their quality or, uh, you know, or the, what, something that they have or something that's happened to them. It's when we see some, what somebody else has and we think, you know, I would like that, to have that. I would like to have that thing, that recognition. I mean, God even wrote it into the Ten Commandments. The commandment number ten is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor or thy neighbor's wife. You shouldn't look across the street and see what somebody else has and think, well, I got to have that. Because that is really the root of so many sinful problems. Go all the way back to the beginning and think of the first brothers. Think of Cain in the book of Genesis. He got upset, and it wasn't because his brother had something of value, but it was because his brother's offering to the Lord was looked on with regard or with approval from God. But God didn't look with regard or approval on his offering. And so he looked at his brother and he was jealous of the praise that his brother received from God. God did not accept his, of Cain's sacrifice in the same way. So Cain killed Abel. Even after God warned him, hey, look, sin is crouching at your door. It's like God could see this coming and say, hey, look, sin is, is right there. Don't let sin take a hold of you. And the sin started in his own eyes, first of all. He saw with his eyes something that his brother was receiving, and he didn't like it. He didn't like it, and he, it, it, it formed in his heart bitterness and anger and hatred, which led to the murder of his brother. Or remember how angry King Saul got whenever the crowds were coming in. At one time in Israel's history, King Saul was the king, and he was, you know, he had his ups and his downs. He started out good, and eventually... Basically, God said, I'm going to take the throne from you, and I'm going to give it to this shepherd boy named David. And, and David had his uh, ragamuffin group of, like, it started out like a, just a bunch of criminals, actually. And then they ended up becoming known as the mighty men of David. He had, like, 600 people. And David was, like, always running and then always fighting and um, always being attacked and trying to defend himself. And it was like this whole drama that played out. And people began to be aware of this. And one time... Saul heard the crowds were all celebrating and they were singing a song that said, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul was like, oh my goodness, no. He was so angry. Like he wasn't like, I have killed thousands, you know. Yeah, everybody celebrate me. No, he said, why are they singing about David? It made him so much more angry that he wanted to get rid of David because of the approval that David was getting, the recognition that David was getting from the crowds. And, I mean, crowds are fickle, you know? Crowds are fickle. They were all into Saul, but then they're like, oh, look at David over here. And then they started celebrating him. And then this made him so angry. Well, the, the preacher here, he's talking once again about this topic of work, which he's already addressed. So work is a gift from God. But like all of God's blessings, work can be distorted by sin. You see, you know, he's already addressed this topic of how much he's, he's been, how, how important work is. But the problem is that our work 
can be something that we worship. It can be the center of our lives. Or we can kill ourselves working in order to buy more stuff to keep up these appearances. Or we end up buying stuff that we don't even have time to use. So we want, want something, want something so bad, and we get it, and then we're so busy working, we don't even have time to enjoy what we had just bought. And what he says is, that is like a striving after the wind. That's what he says in verse 4. It's, all, it's also vanity, or mist, or vapor, and it's a striving after the wind. And there was something else that the preacher observed. And the opposite of the person who works too much, it was a man who refused to work at all. In verse 5 it says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Rather than joining the rat race, some people drop out altogether. They say, well, yeah, I was taught, don't keep up with the Joneses. Have you ever heard that saying, uh, keeping up with the Joneses? I remember when I first heard that when I was little, and I was like, who are the Joneses? Like, I literally knew nobody named Jones, and I had no idea what that went. And my, I asked my parents, and they said, well, that means when you... Like somebody else gets something and then you want something. And I actually, as a kid, I didn't understand why I would want any of my neighbor's stuff. You know what I mean? But um, I understand as a kid, I wanted my brother's stuff. So the saying was keeping up with your brothers, and that I could have understood. But there are people that like always want what somebody else has. It was Dave Ramsey, the teacher of money teacher. He says, you know, we spend money we don't have to buy stuff we don't need to impress people we don't even really like. And that's true. That's what we oftentimes tend to do but the opposite of working so hard and buying all that stuff is just saying you know um, I'm not even going to work they fold their hands and that phrase the folding of the hands we see that in Proverbs 2 and that is an allusion to like not working like sitting like this just kicking back with your feet up in your recliner and this turns out to be deeply self-destructive as well these verses describe two equal and opposite errors as one author says, uh, as toil can be all-consuming, so idleness is self-cannibalizing as well. And so the question for you, when you look at these two things that the author is saying here, which is more, which is more of a temptation for you? Maybe you are tempted to be envious of what somebody else has and to wear yourself out trying to keep up. Or maybe you think you're above all that, so you have a negative attitude toward work altogether, and you decide just to try to avoid that as much as possible. Either way, the preacher has some good advice in the form of a proverb in verse 6. He says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. In other words, a small amount of food eaten in peace is preferred to an elaborate meal where there is conflict. Instead of cruel competitiveness, Solomon recommends moderation and contentment. We see similar advice from, from Solomon as well. In Proverbs 15, 15, it says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Or chapter 16, Better is little with righteousness than great treasure with injustice. Or as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And remember what Paul said, that he had learned the secret of being content in every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, and that was to be thankful. So in all things, with whatever we have, we ought to be thankful with what God has given us. The fifth reality that the author brings up is, is uh, the vanity or the sadness when a person is all alone. 
When he talked about work earlier, Solomon mentioned how unfortunate it was to work and work and work, to pass it off to your, uh, to your children, and then for them just to blow it all and ruin the whole business. How, how unfortunate, how horrible that is. But here he gives another statement here. He says a person who works, but they don't have anybody to enjoy it with. It's like you get to the end of your life, and you've ruined your marriage, you don't talk to your kids anymore, and you end up having a big house, and you're all alone. And he says, how horrible is that? That is completely unfortunate. Wouldn't it have been better to work less and to have those relationships with your family members? Or even, he says, a son or a brother. So how easy it can be for us, even if we don't have children or situation of life we may be in, to, to think that, like, how important it is that we have other people, that we have companions in our walk of life. And what he gets out here in the honesty of, is that loneliness can be very painful. So he gives us this advice in Proverbs, uh, another proverb in, in verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. By the way, these verses are often used in wedding ceremonies. In fact, uh, just this week I used these verses in a wedding ceremony. But it's not really about marriage. I didn't tell them that, you know what I mean? But you could use it for marriage, but he's not talking about marriage specifically. He's talking about relationships in general. That two are better than one because they have a good re return for their work. And he lists these practical reasons why, you know, um, how, why it's not good to be alone. And the first is assistance in verse 10. Two are better than one because when you're by yourself, if you fall down, it's nice to have somebody to help you up. And how unfortunate it is, is if you fall down and you have no one there to help you up. Uh, yes, this is literally speaking, where sometimes if you fall down, it's nice if people say, are you okay? I mean, can I help you? Can I help you back to your feet? But again, just in life, there's going to be times in life where we slip up. There's going to be times in life where, you know, we need a helping hand. And we need to ask somebody to help us sometimes. There'll be times when we might have to have a friend say, hey, can I help you out? Where we need to say, yes. There's nothing wrong with that. That's human. That's human nature. You know, we all need to rely on other people. And also, he says another uh, thing to keep in mind is there's assistance, but there's also comfort. In verse 11, he says, if, if two lie down, they're able to keep warm. Now, this is also practically speaking, because whenever people were traveling back in their day, it was a lot better to, to keep warm with another person. In fact, um, I heard a story of this even happening today. There used to be a guy in our church who was a big hiker. He would hike parts of the Appalachian Trail. And he told me a story one time when he was hiking. Along the Appalachian Trail, there are shelters that, as you know, you know, they're marked on the trail. You're going to go to those. You're going to you try to get there for nightfall so that you're not sleeping out under the stars. And you want to get to this this lean-to, this open-air shelter. And he said there happened before where he, he's hiking, hiking. He gets into the shelter. He gets in there by himself, and he gets in a sleeping bag, and he gets comfy, cozy. He falls asleep. And then he's told me before that he wakes up, and there's people beside him, like right beside him. And he's like, it's kind of weird if you're not used to this because you're like, well, when did you get, who are you, and why are you laying beside me? But like, other people share in that shelter. Other people that are hike, uh, what they call through hikers, they know that it's going to be warmer. I know you're in a sleeping bag. It's going to be warmer in the shelter if you kind of get close to somebody else. So he said it's like weird, like, because we're not used to that. 
But back, that's what the, the guy here, he's writing. He's saying it's better if two people can sleep close together. It's going to be warmer for you. There's some benefit in being with another person to have a companion. And then thirdly, he gives another good, uh, good uh, reason there of why it's good to have another. And that's defense of one another. He says in verse 12, like one person by himself, he might be attacked by a band of, of robbers. Like Jesus used that example of the good Samaritan, how a man was traveling by himself and he fell into the hands of robbers. But if there are two, then they will be able to withstand uh, somebody who wants to do them wrong. Or three is even better, he says. If there are more than two people, if there are three people, just like a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And finally, Solomon uses these final four verses to tell a story about a poor person who becomes king. Now, he might be thinking about Joseph, who rose to power whenever um, God's people were in slavery. He could be talking about him, but we don't really know for sure. But he's basically talking about a situation where a young person was poor and he had a lot of wisdom versus a king who was powerful, but he was a fool. And basically, I think what Solomon's getting at here is that, you know, leaders rise and leaders fall. And today's hero will become tomorrow's bum, right? The crowds will celebrate you one day, and they'll throw you in the gutter the next day. And if you look at verse 16, it says, There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity or a striving after the wind. In other words, there's a lot of different ways you can look at this this, this paragraph. But I think what he's saying here is, is like, things change. And again, the way you look at vanity like smoke or like mist and and trying to strive to earn people's approval, even large groups of people's approval, he says things come and things go. Leaders rise, leaders fall. And if you just want to try to please the crowds, you're not going to make everybody happy. You can't can't do it. It's like a vanity. It's like a, a chasing after the wind. It's just striving after the wind. So what's the point that the author is getting at through, through all of this, like what he's writing? The, you know, there's some good Proverbs in here, but this isn't like the book of Proverbs, right? Ecclesiastes is, is kind of different here. I think, like I said, you've got to look at chapter, the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4 as flowing from chapter 3. And what the author is getting at is basically, I think we can agree with him and says, you know what, look at this world we live in. What a mess, right? What a messed up place here. And that is true. But even in this messed up world, we have gifts of God's grace. We have other people to walk with us. We have God's good laws to give us wisdom of how we can live and we can work. And best of all, we can have forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. So the world is imperfect. And the world is always changing. But remember this, even when things don't make sense, God is still sovereign, and God is still on his throne.